This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello, welcome to The Country Hour across South Australia and Broken Hill. I'm Cassie Huff. Today, we're doing something a little different. In the second half of the program, I'm going to be live from the sweetest smelling event I think I've ever covered. The World Rose Convention is on in Adelaide for the next week, and uh, there's people coming from all over the world as well as across Australia, and right now, it's a hive of activity at the convention centre with people setting up for the expo that will open later today. There are flowers galore, so I'll be discussing the importance of uh, how breeding and how rose breeding and growing to South Australia, what it means to South Australia. I mean, this state has such a long history with roses, thanks to people like the late David Rustin. Uh, We'll also be hearing about the the significance of this event because if you have been driving around lately or perhaps even looked in your own gardens, you'd see that roses are well and truly in bloom right across this state. So it's a nice chance to celebrate such a, a popular plant in South Australia. So more on that in the next half hour. Also, managing salinity has long been a feature of Australia Australian farming. Soon you'll meet a lucerne breeder that's been trying to make lucerne more salt tolerant. You know, you spend all this time evaluating trials and, and sowing them and harvesting trials and you collect all that data and then when you see that material come through and you have outstanding results that you're hoping for, it's um, really rewarding and good to be involved in. More on that soon, but if you think back a year, on this morning 12 months ago, parts of South Australia were lashed by a freak hailstorm. Many people say they never saw it coming. It's, uh, it was uh, devastating in many aspects. Farmers and landholders are still feeling the impacts a year on. The owner and winemaker of Heath Hellfowl Wines at Barossa Ranges, Trevor Marsh, reflects on that day saying he lost about $120,000 in seven minutes, as Dimitri Panagiotaris reports. What percentage would you say of the crops were damaged? Oh, 100 percent. It was a total write-off. We didn't we didn't have anything left, and of course it it all happened in seven minutes of this extreme hail. And then that afternoon we had sort of these gale force winds that came through, and anything that had been bruised in the morning just snapped off in the afternoon. So it almost looked like somebody had had, had been through with a machine harvester and just trashed the place. So talk to me about. What was going on in your mind once you had understood or seen the full extent of that damage? Uh, my main concern was what was I going to to do with the the damage that was there, and I had to make a decision pretty quickly. I knew I felt uh, uh, I felt sorry for my neighbours as well, and I guess I was happier that I actually knew what I was going to do, whereas they were. They were coming to me and having a look and to see what I was doing. And then, you know, anyone that missed out, I thought, good on you, because it, it was a lottery. Uh, there, was, there was no rhyme or reason for it. But, but it was about five or six kilometres wide. I mean, it wasn't as if it was a narrow little strip. And it came from the glass houses and went right through to the riverland. Uh, it was just amazing. I mean, I've got some fabulous video of it, the noise uh, that it, when it came down. And, uh, you know, I probably lost $120,000 in that seven minutes. And, of course, we don't insure for hail. I mean, it's just prohibitive. So um, you just grin and bear it. And I thought I did, but 
I realised later that it did certainly have a, a mental effect on me for a while. Yeah, as it would anybody. So looking forward to this season now, the 2023 harvest, what's your feelings heading into that season? Well, we've, we've got a really good crop. You know, what I did last year was absolutely worth it. So we had really good initiation of the little little bunches, the mini bunches that are actually inside those those new buds. And now that they've all burst and come out, you know, we're seeing um, really good bunches and they're prolific. So uh, even though we have forgone one particular season, we've uh, we're going to you know, have a good crop this year as as long as we can. Now, now we've got a few other issues like downy mildew and stuff because it's so wet and you can't get out in your vineyard and spray. And uh, I've got one spray on, and we're looking like another thirty to forty mil this weekend. So so I won't be getting out on the tractor for some time yet, uh, and that's a bit of a worry. And, of course, we've still got to look out for pouting algae. So the wet season, we won't have to think about irrigating until, you know, next year. But at the same time, we still need to be able to get onto uh, ground now and actually look after our vines. That was Heathvale Wines owner Trevor March. Sixth-generation farmer Sean Koleski owns Laughing Jack's Wines in the Barossa Valley. After the hail took out over 50% of his crop, he says they've been just limping along. And although so many were impacted, even domestically, he feels like he's one of the lucky ones. Well, to be honest, I, I wasn't aware, obviously, of a, a potential threat of a storm. I sort of I was thinking, was that hail? I thought, no, surely not. You know, I mean, I, I certainly wasn't aware of anything forecast. But uh, I remember walking outside going, oh, my God. Oh, you know, I was like, oh, no. I just remember going, oh, no. And I'm thinking to myself, geez, I hope, I hope this is not widespread. And, and I could just see that it was just that the ground was green of, of shoots. And, and at that point, I went, oh, this is, this is not good. So I think we're on target to hit our, around that sort of two tonne of the acre. And I just straight away realised that this is not going to be the case. The moment I looked at the vineyards and could see that they were extremely damaged, you know, a, a significant amount of the bunches were were on the ground and shoots uh, snapped, broken, just a real mess. So, yeah, probably at that point, you weren't quite thinking ahead. It was probably within the days ahead that you were just going, you know, well, this is going to be long. It's not just going to be. We, we didn't just lose, at this point, a significant amount of our crop. But now we also knew it was going to be tough going into the pruning season and so on. Owner of Barossa Valley's Laughing Jack's Wine, John Koleski, speaking with Dimitri Panagiotaris. Last thing that uh, grape growers need is, is a hailstorm, and hopefully the hail stays away this year. In the Riverland, that storm cell unleashed damaging winds and hail and left homes without power for days, wreaking havoc on many farms. In Pyap, hail netting over one of the Arnold Brothers citrus orchards was actually shredded like cobwebs. Grower Ryan Arnold tells Eliza Berlage it's been a slow re- rebuild. I'm Ryan Arnold. I'm a citrus grower at Pyap. Um, just outside of Loxton. We're standing here in your orchards. Um, We're under some hail netting that looks very different to how it looked last year. We had some freak storms come through the Riverland, as we do on occasions, and we had a particularly fierce one pretty much run straight through the centre of our property. Yeah, I was sitting in the office just watching it it unfold, so the, the winds were probably 
some of the fiercest I've ever um, experienced and just looking at the results in my orchard with, with our netting which um, sort of blew down and, and some hail after that and then the trees in the neighbourhood as well that were that were all flat on the ground and sheds with doors ripped off. Yeah, it was um, it was pretty ferocious. Personally, I, I think that the, the winds that came through our little section would, would have been possibly up to 150. We could see on drone footage when we put a drone up um, assessing the damage there was a real narrow strip and you could just see the trail of destruction in the vegetation even off the orchard. What was the effect on your your citrus harvest for this year in terms of yields and qualities did you have any issues there? Yeah definitely um, there was a little bit of hail involved in that wind and and there was a fair bit of stress put on the trees in that in that situation too so um, with, with our netting we get really good high um, class one packouts. That's one of the benefits of, of our netting for our orchard, not just for for hail. Um, it's also for wind blemish as well. And without that there for a lot of the growing season, we had a lot more wind through the season, um, plus some hail damage. And yeah, we, we, we saw quite a significant drop back in our packouts um, for this season. What sort of support did you need to get, you know, financially? Well, definitely the state government's we accessed their clean-up fund, and um, that was really helpful at the start, and that, and that came through quite quick. Um, and the, it, was, it was quite a painless um, application method, so I found that really good. There was some insurance that we... Really, our, our netting is insurance for us in a way. Like, it's not affordable to have hail insurance, per se, on horticultural crops, so we use our netting as, as an insurance for the hail. And, and out of that, that means it's a risk to the insurance companies having so much net up there as well. So they they don't insure the, the netting part, but they will give us some insurance on the structural damage. So insurance accounted for a small portion. Pyep citrus grower Ryan Arnold. Delays to almond processing means the industry doesn't yet know how much crop was lost. But Century Orchard's chief executive Brendan Sadu says he thinks the yield from his Loxton trees will be better than initial post-storm estimates. Brendan Sadu, CEO of Century Orchards, and we're located in Loxton. And Brendan, we're standing uh, in your orchards at the moment in Loxton and we're having a look at some of the trees that were affected by some really intense storms that hit the Riverland about a year ago with some very intense winds and hail. Can you tell me, Brendan, about that day a year ago? What was it like? Yeah, it was very, very taxing, I can say, on our staff. In this particular orchard, that we're standing in was one of the heaviest hits um, across our orchard. We did some counts um, the following day and thought we'd lost up to two tonne of almonds per hectare. So, you know, that's obviously very taxing, not only on the orchard itself. I mean, the, the trees really did look like they were beaten up, but also the management and the staff, you know. It was, a, just, it was just a really stressful time for those first few days, just trying to work out how much damage we had over the whole orchard, where it was and, and what what the effect of that was going to be on our yields. And did you have staff on site when, when the weather came through? What was it like then? Yeah, so we had a full team here when it hit um, and our manager and our water masters both live on site, so they were obviously here. Yeah, they were pretty devastated. Um, they called me and I, I called in and had a look, but it was, yeah, it was horrendous. But it was mainly the hail that hit, like there's golf golf ball size hail that really hit and and really knocked the crop around. And I'm just looking now at some of the trees in the row we're standing in. 
are not sure which ones are broken branches perhaps from last year or which ones have been pruned and where the growth has changed. Could you just describe to me what is new growth and what's changed compared to other parts of your orchard? Sure. So this particular row we're uh, sitting in is one we've hedged. So all the all this growth you can see is actually new growth. It's probably going to take another year before it'll put, put fruit on. You'll notice there's no fruit on it. It's just vegetative. Hopefully that'll turn into um, fruiting um, wood next year. It's amazing the, how they've bounced back. Do you have any uh, estimation on how much uh, crop you might have lost or what that might have cost? When we did our initial counts, we were thinking we lost two tonne a hectare, so we thought we'd lost 50% in some of our orchards. I think it's more likely to be you know, about 20%. Was there anything in particular that you learnt that might help you in, in future storms like that? I mean, it was a pretty unique storm that came through. Well, hopefully it's only a one-in-a-lifetime uh, storm that we've had, but I think it was a great lesson to our staff. As I said to them... You know, you can't stress and worry about things you can't do anything about. Let's just move forward. So hopefully we've learnt that lesson. You know, these things will come and challenge you in life, but it's not the end of the world. We can get on and move on. Century Orchards Chief Executive Brendan Sidhu ending that story by Eliza Burlage. And we did actually contact the Primary Industries Department to find out just how much funding they provided for the storm cleanup. Hopefully it uh, be good to know how much they did do. We'll also uh, speak with some growers from the Northern Adelaide Plains next week because they also st- suffered some huge losses as well as a result of that hailstorm. Can you believe it was a year ago today that that hailstorm came through parts of South Australia? More on that next week as we are 18 minutes past 12. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Salinity is a problem for a lot of growers, but particularly the uh, upper southeast uh, sees issues with salinity. It's a problem for loosened growers at Keith and Meningi with high salt levels in both soil and irrigation water. Many seed companies are trying to produce more salt-tolerant loosened species. Joe Williams is a loosened breeder from S&W Seed Company and is currently trialling new varieties at both places. She took Karen Hunt through the process of finding the right seeds and then developing them for market. At the beginning of the program, we just put all of the gen- genetic material that we had available um, within, our, within our company in the screening sites at the two locations at Meningi and Keith. And so for the last two years, we've been evaluating those lines, looking for any plants or lines that are showing really good um, tolerance and growth in those saltier areas. And so then we make plant selections on those lines and then we take those plants and cross them in pollination cages with bees and then that's how we uh, get the next generation of seed. So you're on to uh, third or fourth generation yeah, now? Yeah, so we've now got in small build-up plots lines that we've selected three years ago where we've made selection for forage yield for seed yield for pest and disease resistance and of course the salt tolerance and so they're at the stage now where they're in build-up blocks and we're looking at um, sort of the final evaluation stages of those and progressing them through the breeding program. So when might they be available Ooh, for the million growers? dollar question. <laughs> so on average it can take between seven and ten years to produce a loosened variety with the elite um, characteristics that you're after. We're sort of at three or four years down that process. So still a bit more screening and evaluation to go. 
How do you evaluate that? Is there like a checklist of points that they get? Yes, yeah, we have a very strict protocol on the characteristics and what they have to meet. So we just have benchmarks right across the program. So they have to meet certain benchmarks for forage yield, for seed yield, pest and disease, and then any other traits that we're looking at, whether that's persistence or grazing tolerance or salt tolerance, they have to meet those benchmarks. How hard is it to get the whole package with the salt tolerance, <laughs> the disease resistance, all of those yeah, sorts of things? Yeah, it, um, it can be very... Um, complex you know because you're looking for that silver bullet almost of the loosened variety but the advantage that you have once you do the breeding cycle and maybe something doesn't quite meet the benchmark you can cycle it back through and not lose that that genetic base that you've built on and then you can cycle that back through and then select for that trait that you're trying to increase. Sounds a very complicated and very time-consuming process. Yes, but also very rewarding and fun. You know, you spend all this time evaluating trials and and sowing them and harvesting trials and you collect all that data and then when you see that material come through and you have outstanding results that you're hoping for, it's um, really rewarding and good to be involved in. Can this data that you're collecting now and this type of seed that you're looking for, could that also be planted in other parts of Australia where they do have salinity issues in soil? Yeah, definitely. We're um, working with the Pasture Trial Network, which is a domestic uh, trial network, and looking at putting some trials in Western Australia. Dryland salinity is obviously a big issue over there, and we, and we trial our material all over the country. And then also gets exported globally too to our global trials as well. So moving forward once you've got your preferred seed that you want to increase does it then go into a plot for breeding commercial amounts of seed? Yes once I've got it to the level that I'm wanting to be at and it's and it's met all the criteria and the benchmarks I then pass it on to the production team within the company and then they build it up into commercial quantities. Loose and breeder Joe Williams. She took Karen Hunt through the process of breeding the next generation of salt tolerant loose. And we've got weather up next. But before we get there, have you been trying to get your hands on some Kwandongs this spring? Well, it might be the last week to get your hands on this sour bush fruit. In the far west of New South Wales, it's been a roller coaster ride of a season for the Kwandong farm in Broken Hill, with the increase in rain causing a rise in grubs that affect the plants. Yusuf Saudi spoke with owner Robert Tavian about how the wet weather has impacted the season on his farm. Yeah, um, it did start a bit early this year. started maybe early August, late July. The fruit started to ripen around then, which is a little bit earlier than normal. Yeah, it has dropped off now. It's only drips and drabs that are left. So yeah, with that more rain, which is good to get, as the fruit ripens, it does actually split the fruit and, yeah, and destroys it a little bit. That was a downside of the rain. And also, I think with the wetter weather, there's a lot more Kwangdong grub around. Seems to be yeah, a fair bit of the, the grub around. Right. Can you tell me a bit about what Kwangdong grub is and how that's impacted you? It's a moth. It's called the Kwangdong moth. So that lays its eggs in the fruit as it develops and then turns into, a, I suppose, like a little caterpillar which eats the inside of the fruit and turns it all black and yucky and virtually unusable. That will come out of the fruit, like turn into a moth and keep on going around, like lay its eggs again and just keep on doing a cycle. And so with the splitting, can you tell me a bit about that? How common has that been throughout this season? It's just mainly like after it rains, it's been reasonably common. But yeah, like if you're just going to turn into a jam or something like that, it doesn't really affect it that way, that, that way too much. 
Otherwise, they do go a bit, bit mushy and go mouldy. Turns them unusable again. And so when do you reckon you started experiencing Kwanzong grubs as well as splitting in the fruits? Well, the, the grub has always been there. But no, normally you only get the grub in the hotter, the hotter weather, so around, say, 25 degrees. And like with this year, the way it's been, like we've got a few days, I suppose, where we've got the 25s and that, but there hasn't been many. So you wouldn't think on that theory that it'd be that bad, but it has been, and it seems to be worse in that, that respect in the season. So like around August, you didn't seem to have that problem, but this year didn't, it didn't matter. It's, it just seemed to be uh, seemed to be a bad year for the for the Kwandong moth. When you yeah. say it's been a bad year for the Kwandong farm, like can you tell me how this compares to previous years? For, for damaged fruit from the moth, quite a bit, and for actual how much fruit was around. Okay, there was a reasonable amount, but like the previous year was an actual better year for actual fruit, and I suppose maybe that's because there wasn't so much damage as well. How common is splitting in the Kwanzongs for you? It's normally uh, when when we get rain, like they're at that point where they're virtually ripe, then we, we get rain and, and uh, too much moisture and they split. So it, it just depends on the weather. Uh, how it, it is, it, well, if it rains, it's virtually... If it rains and you leave them there for a couple of days before you pick them, you, you're going to get split. Owner of Broken Hill Kwandong Farm, Robert Tavian, speaking with Yusuf Saudi. We'll head across to the Bureau of Meteorology now, where senior forecaster Simon Timke has the latest on what is in store for this state. Good afternoon. G'day, Cassie. So it's it's actually li- finally a bit of a break in the clouds, but it's not going to last for long by the sound of things. Uh, no, that's exactly right. Yeah, we uh, uh, had... Uh, I guess more frequent showers earlier this morning over the agricultural area, particularly the southern agricultural area. We've seen those showers become a little bit less frequent now, although still a bit over um, the southeast districts and Murray lands, but uh, over remaining parts they have eased a bit. Plenty of clear sky over um, parts of the the north, but cloud increasing in the west now. And as the afternoon goes on in the far west, I think we'll see some some showers and thunderstorms develop. Um, They're associated with a low pressure trough that will move slowly eastwards uh, over the weekend. So that uh, for Saturday, uh, I think areas over, over the west, the northwest pastoral and west coast district, We'll see um, showers increase, uh, thunderstorms develop and possibly severe thunderstorms northwest of about Coober with heavy rainfall, gusty winds possible. Um, further south uh, uh, for Saturday, just isolated showers about southern coastal districts, maybe extending as far north as sort of southern parts of the Mount Lofty Ranges, um, but, but generally not expecting a lot of total out of those, those rainfall uh, areas. For Sunday, that trough will move eastwards and, and bring uh, the more widespread showers uh, and and thunderstorms over central and eastern parts of the state Uh, and again uh, a a chance of severe thunderstorms over a fairly large area including central parts of the pastoral districts uh, and most of the agricultural area be a chance of seeing some severe thunderstorms with again gusty winds heavy rainfall possibly a bit of bit of hail even Uh, and, and as the, the, that trough moves across, a low pressure system moves across waters to the south, 
quite a tight gradient around that low so quite windy conditions even away from some of those thunderstorms so wouldn't be surprised to see some severe weather warnings out for for damaging winds and also the possibility of some severe thunderstorm warnings as well over over sort of central and eastern parts of the state on sunday Monday and Tuesday, a couple of vigorous cold fronts moving up from the southwest. We'll see colder conditions extend over most districts with showers um, pretty frequent over the agricultural area and far south of the pastoral districts. Possible thunderstorms, some small hail about southern parts as well, particularly on Tuesday and Wednesday as we see that coldest air move across. So well below average temperatures, particularly through through Tuesday. Rainfall totals, uh, we're likely to see a, a, a bit of rain over the next four days. So for that period out to the end of Tuesday, um, we are forecasting generally the order of 5 to 15 millimetres but reaching 15 to 35 millimetres about the agricultural area and also with thunderstorms in the north and west. With that convective weather, with the thunderstorms, we're likely to see some, some local heavier falls of 30 to 50 millimetres with thunderstorms uh, and some local heavier falls of 30 to 60 millimetres about parts of the agricultural area, particularly about the, the Mount Lofty Ranges which might see some heavier falls. So some, some wet, wintry weather on the way. Uh, Cassie? I can't believe it. So cold at this time of year. Sprinter. We're in sp- <laughs> cross between spring and winter. Thanks so I, much for that, Simon Timke. No worries, Cassie. And uh, in the far west of New South Wales, the upper western will be partly cloudy. There's a slight chance of a shower near the South Australian border. Not much chance anywhere else. Overnight temperatures getting down to 10 to 13 degrees, but the daytime temperatures will reach the mid to high 20s. The lower western will be partly cloudy. Overnight temperatures will fall to around 9, but during the day reaching the low to mid 20s. It's coming up to 12.30. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Cassie Huff. Cassie Huff. Hello, I'm so glad you could join me today. Now, uh, on this program, we cover all sorts of farming. Today... I thought I'd delve into the world of roses. They are a very lucrative part of uh, protected agriculture in this country. If you've been out and about lately, you've probably seen the brilliant blooms. Adelaide's absolutely covered in roses at the moment, as are the towns and gardens right across South Australia. And it's Good timing because South Australia is hosting the 19th World Rose Convention, which also includes the Adelaide International Rose and Garden Expo, which is being set up at the moment as we speak. Lots of people are running around the Adelaide Convention Centre, which I must say, I've visited this uh, convention centre many times over the years for a broad range of conferences, and I've never been to one that has smelt as sweet. There is the scent of rose wafting out across the uh, convention centre. It's uh, quite a delight. And uh, this Garden Expo is a new event that uh, has been uh, staged to coincide with the conventions. Uh, So so, uh, we'll be looking at uh, just what rose breeding, growing, uh, cultivating... It means to this state and indeed the uh, nation as well because South Australia has a long history of rose development. The late David Rustin from Remarks is synonymous with roses from this state. So we're going to hear more about rose growing in this state and about a rose that has just been launched into the Rose 
Hall of Fame. So all that is coming up in the next half hour. But first, we'll find out what's making news with Matt Coleman. Good afternoon. Hello, Cassie. In the news this afternoon, the Attorney-General's Department will consider an investigation into a book that revealed former Prime Minister Scott Morrison's secret ministries. The Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet has told Senate estimates that it did not know that Mr Morrison was briefing the book's authors during the COVID pandemic. The Department's John Reid says the book contains information that would usually be protected by Cabinet confidentiality. Wellbeing SA says public patients caught up in the Medibank data hack are now being contacted individually by the company. SA Health yesterday confirmed that 4,400 clients of the My Home Hospital program have been affected, including some who have never been Medibank customers. And the SA Liberal Party has confirmed there's been a breach involving some personal information about 2,000 members. The incident has been reported to police with the addresses and phone numbers of members accessed without authorisation through a statement the party's director Alex May said that no financial details were accessed. More news at one o'clock. Thanks for that, Matt Coleman there. Now, Kelvin Trimper is a regular on ABC Local Radio. He graces many programs and he has the illustrious title of the former president of the World Federation of Roses and he is convening this massive event that Adelaide is hosting in the World of Roses. Now, it's an event that had to be delayed due to COVID, so uh, it's quite a coup to now finally be able to host it. Good afternoon, Kelvin. Good afternoon, Cassie. Afternoon, listeners. So uh, we've walked into this event and I can just smell roses everywhere. I'm surprised, though, not all the flowers here are roses, though. You've got some amazing just floral displays going up by the looks of things. Oh, absolutely. And I think uh, the Rose and Garden Expo is just that. Um, it's, it's roses as a theme, but with other plants and all garden-related products. And tell me about the spectacular display you've, that uh, is being built as we speak. Yes, the Rose and Garden Expo will feature about 11,000 blooms, we think. Um, a number of those blooms um, coming from around the world, um, Kenya um, in particular, um, scented roses. So you'll be able to come in and smell the roses, which, you, as you've highlighted already, will be a key feature of the of the Expo and in all sorts of floral arrangements mixed with Australian native plants, um, other exotic plants, um, shown on the show bench, but also spoken about. And I've, there are hundreds, thousands, millions possibly of roses in this city at the moment. Why do you need to import them? Well, because we've got this big convention on. Um, we are showcasing our gardens, so we didn't want to trim every rose out of our gardens and bring it into Sorry. the convention Sorry. centre. We wanted something for our um, 250 participants to look at uh, in the city, so we decided we'll, to, to get the colour we wanted and the vibrancy we wanted in the expo, we would import some, and uh, they go through strict quarantine procedures. So from a biosecurity um, point of view, that's fine. 90% of our roses sold through florists are imported now. So from that point of view, it just follows standard procedures. Biosecurity, though, can take some time. Oh, it does. How do you keep the roses fresh? Because they're cut before they get sure, here, aren't they? Sure. So how do they stay fresh? So there's, there's two aspects to that. There are cut flower roses, which are designed to last maybe up to 14 days after they're picked. And then for garden roses, they're, they're actually new techniques now where they're conditioned after they're picked, then they're dry-packed, um, go through gassing and dipped in Roundup. So that 
gets rid of any possible issues with biosecurity, then they'll dry pack, shipped to Australia, left in very, very cold, cool rooms, down almost to freezing, and then just prior to their use in floral arrangements, they're woken up by uh, recutting the stems and putting them in buckets of water right up to their necks. Oh, right. And it works. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> I, I, we see roses in all sorts of bouquets right across yes, we do. the country. Do Where does Australia sit in terms of rose breeding? Because you think about those massive blooms, you think of the Ecuadorian, Ecuadorian roses sure. or the, the Kenyan roses. Where does Australia sit in terms of the size of our industry? Sure. So most of the cut flowers, in fact, are imported because Kenya and Ecuador being the the main sources of cut flower roses for the world actually um, and our florists import them um, into into Australia. We used to have a cut flower rose industry of some size in the 50s and 60s but that before air travel came down in, in terms of time between countries which made it feasible to to import roses from other countries where perhaps they have better better growing conditions for glass houses and so on and so forth. Cheaper so it water. is conditions based not necessarily oh, worker uh, Yes, workers come into it too, um, you know, cost of labour and things like that certainly certainly are factors in where people source flowers for the cut flower market globally. And just how popular is the rose? Well, the rose is the world's most popular flower by at least twofold. Um, so the next most popular being being orchids. Um, you know, orchids. tulips are in there as well, but uh, particularly through that equatorial. Um, belt, you know, orchids do extremely well, high populations you know, around the equator so, you know, orchids and things like that uh, obviously flourish there and are pretty popular but universally without question the rose is the world's most popular flower and it's quite an easy flower to become obsessed with, I've discovered. I'm not just from talking to you, but myself. <laughs> I bought a house and I keep buying roses. Well, I think... I so. think uh, and, and everybody at this convention is very pleased that you're doing that because, <laughs> um, you know, our, our job our job as rosarians, and we call ourselves that, we, we are a bit nutty about roses, um, our job is to, to make it easier for people who perhaps don't have it as a as much of a passion as we do but to grow roses easily and that's where people like Anthony who's sitting here and Thomas Prohl who's sitting here um, are very very important because they are breeding disease resistant easy to grow roses which is the future you know you haven't got time to be out there no, spraying don't. we don't want you spraying the last thing we want you to do is to go out and kill all the critters uh, the good ones and the bad ones because uh, you know that's not good for biodiversity so so uh, we want to make it as easy as possible for you to grow roses so before I let you go and talk to some of the, the rose breeders that we have here and uh, agents etc what are going to be some of the highlights from the world rose convention that's being held here in Adelaide yeah look, good question uh, um, the Rose Expo, which starts this afternoon at 4 o'clock and continues over Saturday and Sunday at the Convention Centre uh, with 10,000 blooms on display, lots of trade exhibits, lectures every hour, um, activities for children. That will certainly be the highlight, the central feature of the convention. But throughout the convention, we are doing garden visits with our overseas visitors um, and we're talking about roses, talking about the future of roses, you know, what are the next trends, so that, you know, we're all up to date with where the world's heading in roses. Well, I'm so glad you could join me. I am looking forward to, to seeing just how magnificent these blooms are. The 10,000 roses, did you say, have come 10,000 roses, that's a 1,000 bunches 
of roses. Right, that'll be magnificent to see. Might be lucky. Might get a chance to see that. Kelvin Trimper, who is a former world president of the World Federation of Roses, he's also the convener of the World Rose Convention that's on in Adelaide at the moment. But one of the special events that has taken place today is the induction of a new rose into the Rose Hall of Fame. And to explain a little about this rose and what makes it so special, I'm joined by Anthony Tesla, who is a well-known rose agent. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Nice to be here. Thank you. So, for people who have been wanting to know hmm. what rose has been uh, introduced into the, the Rose Hall of Fame, actually, before we do, perhaps give people a, a sense of um, the roses that have gone before it hmm. and just how important they have been in the, in the, the history of rose growing. Well, you might actually... I think I'll pass it over to <laughs> Kelvin. Because sure, we can ask Kelvin to put that. <laughs> okay, well, the most, the most famous, of course, of all roses inducted to the Hall of Fame was the first one, and it was called Peace. Um, Peace was introduced in America um, at the end of the war, Second World War, and is without question probably the most well-known rose in the world. Hmm. But there have been other famous roses like Iceberg, like Knockout, um, like Graham Thomas, um, one of the Austin roses. These are all Queen Elizabeth. These are all classic roses that have been in cultivation generally 20 or so years that are popular throughout the world. Um, not just in Australia, but throughout the world. And I think that's important. And each one of the 40 member countries of the World Federation gets one vote every three years on which rose they want inducted into the Hall of Fame. This one, Sam. Yes, they picked this one. <laughs> which rose is it? It's a flower carpet pink. Flower carpet, carpet pink. pink. Okay. It, it's primarily a ground cover rose, so it's different from your normal vase-type tall stem rose. And so it's out there for the garden. It was primarily for disease resistance. It was for a massive amount of flowering. It was so easy to grow. It was for people that wanted to grow roses but were never, uh, well, actually afraid to grow rose because they had to do too much to it. And this plant, you just put it in, let it grow, and it just Plows. That's the sort of rose I like. That's what's actually got me into because I find roses are actually mm. quite a hardy plant, really. Oh, they're much tougher than mm. people think. Yeah. Correct. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're the only thing that's had alive during the drought in our garden. You, True. You, keep, you collect the water from your shower and then you take it out and just mm. put it on the roses and we just kept our roses alive that way. Like They, they survive remarkably well. And uh, ha, why is it that this rose was chosen by, as Kelvin Trimper said, all the, the rose societies around the world? Um, that I can't answer to that, except <laughs> I can say, though, that um, what we really tried to do with this rose is to get people into roses who were never into roses before. And I'm personally one of those that only ever had one rose in my garden, and I was never going to grow any because it was all too hard. And so that when the breeder came out with this one, and uh, it was, uh, I didn't have to do any work on it, I didn't have to spray anything on it, um, all I had to do was plant it out if I had to prune it and all I got to do is pair of shears and just cut it in half. Oh. Uh, that was it and that was my type of rose. Oh, and it happened to flower and flower and flower. And uh, you didn't And you know about it when it flowers. It's a bright pink, isn't it? Oh, it is it's that pink with a bit of magic to it. <laughs> Lipstick sort of pink, I think. Yeah, it's a hot pink and, and it really it really demands your attention without really knowing it. You see, you know, there's 
500 different shades of pink around there. And oh, maybe I should have said 50 shades of pink, uh, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, but it, it's got that magic element that really draws you to it. And I understand it was bred in 1988 in Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, you're a retailer of, of roses. How popular would this be for people buying them? Um, in the garden industry, it's regarded as one of the biggest selling roses around the world right. for ground cover roses. Right. So, But it took the breeder 26 years to develop it because, you know, in breeding you can change one bit and it depends on, on the shape of the plant, whether it flowers easy, whether it just gives a single flowering and it doesn't flower anymore, um, whether you have to do a lot of work on it. And to get all those elements to align takes a long time and it took the breeder 26 years to find that one. Get it right. Gosh, mm. there's so many different variables along the way. You sell a large variety of uh, different plants. What are the what are the trends coming through in uh, in I guess floriculture and, and horticulture? After the COVID, um, people actually started to come back to where they need a bit of nature, and they started seeing in any plants anything natural. They then wanted to get involved in. They wanted to see colour. They wanted to see something grow that wasn't uh, a, a, a challenge to anyone. Um, it brought people a little bit back to Mother Nature, a little bit looking internal about what the soul needs, so to speak. And the COVID has been the biggest single I'd say marketing outcome for the plant industry that the world has ever seen it brought people back home a bit to mother nature and has that continued as the world has emerged from COVID yes um, there's a lot more people that never went into plants never bought a plant whether it's an, just an, an indoor cacti that they had it's something that started them and anything that can get people into gardening is a great element because then the the chance to see color or to see a grass or to something else and then they see the birds coming back into their house like this morning i was listening at home and all the birds were singing their spring songs. It was just absolutely fabulous. And when you have a garden and when you have colour, it really sort of, the colour grabs a soul. You see that and you think, gee, I've grown that. Gee, that's fabulous. The variety of colours in roses is really quite oh. remarkable. Well, thank you so much for um, taking us through this, this new rose that's been inducted into the Rose Hall of Fame. I have had a, a text uh, come in, um, oh, a caller actually is mm. ca- asking, when do you think we'll get a blue rose? There's obviously blue moon, but that's mm-hmm. a purple, more purple coloured rose. Do you think there is ever going to be a blue rose? No. No, why? Well, that's my gut. Oh, oh, that's your gut. <laughs> I've got to disagree. See, see, he's got to disagree with me. With seeing what's coming. Yeah, they're, they're, we've got mauve. Yeah. But we haven't, we haven't got what a we call real. a dual finium blue, mm-hmm. a sky blue. We haven't got that. No. No, no, no we, haven't got a, we haven't got a sea blue. We haven't, we haven't cracked that nut. And let me tell you, there are companies around the world spending millions and millions of dollars trying to invent a blue rose. So, so <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, look, one day, maybe, you never say never, but at the moment, we haven't got there. That reminds <laughs> me of 30, 40 years ago when I was in the, in the, uh, as a president of the Nourishment Association and there was a Japanese company there and they spent a huge amount mm. of money and they went they on did. the stock exchange etc etc and uh, I went in in the uh, I had to get dressed up in this suit because they brought me into this area where they were really working with genetics and uh, 
what I saw was a white petunia where they'd taken the blue out and that's as far as I got because they had then trying to get that gene to put the blue into the rose. Yeah. Uh, sorry, that never worked. <laughs> <laughs> but the white petunia was there. <laughs> wow. Well, I did see a blue kangaroo paw, though, at a nursery recently. So yeah. they are. Kings Park. Yep, yeah. That's really nice stuff yeah. coming through. Yeah. yeah. So so there is blue coming through, but not in the rose. Not I yet. love that, that you guys uh, have differing opinions on that. Thank you so much for taking the time out. What is a very busy Pleasure. time here at the Adelaide <laughs> Convention Centre at the moment. Uh, I was speaking with uh, Anthony Tesla from uh, Tesla as well uh, an agent for Roses and Kelvin Trimper there as we approach 13 minutes to one Hey, how's your health? Not bad, could do with a bit more sleep and a bit less and get on the more often if only I could get motivated Okay, well how about starting with one lifestyle change? I reckon I could do that ABC Your Move is this month. It's about making small changes to your lifestyle that can make a big difference to your health and well-being. Take the ABC Health Check quiz at abc.net.au forward slash your move. Game on! You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Listening to the Country Hour, I'm Cassie Huff, live from the World Rose Convention in Adelaide where... Thousands, tens of thousands of roses are on display at the moment um, at the uh, Rose Convention. You've probably seen the roses uh, right around Adelaide and indeed in your towns and maybe gardens right across South Australia. Everything's in bloom at the moment, which is perhaps a little late for the first flush of roses in this state, but it's been so cold and wet. It's really delayed it and indeed meant that uh, the roses were actually blooming right on time for the uh, Rose Convention which is quite lucky. I'm joined now by Daniel Knight from Gawler who is one of the largest uh, rose producers in the country. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. So how has this season affected you? Um, the first part was very good. We uh, digging season uh, through winter was uh, pretty good and then um, the last part from probably June onwards has been terrible. Too much rain. Too uh, much rain. Yeah, for planting and uh, uh, cleaning up the paddocks, topping roses. It's been it's been awful. So. And how has that affected the rose production? For because uh, this is sort of a, such a crucial time for you. Yeah. Oh, look, the roses are still growing very well. Um, it hasn't probably impacted anything other than the fact that we just can't get on the paddocks. It's a bit wet. That's all. So. Um, but what, it seems to be all right. So. What can you do? And yeah. do you, I mean, we've, I've been talking a lot with farmers lately as we get close to harvest for uh, cereal crops, just um, weed control and pests and diseases and all of that sort of thing. Roses need uh, quite a lot of tender loving care when it comes to those sorts of things in a season like this. Yeah. How expensive and demanding has that been? Um, for labour-wise, it's been a bit of impact a little bit, just um, not being able to go on the ground at certain times and then just trying to catch up with things. Um, but we haven't really had uh, any issues with pests or diseases or anything because it's been so wet. It's been quite good, so, okay. which is uh, surprising still, so it was good. How many roses do you have? Uh, we plant about 450,000 a year, and then um, we buy in roses from other growers as well, and we package them and, um, and sell them off as well and distribute them around Australia. So that's... Um, yeah, that's pretty much what we do. And there are, there are, as we've been saying, I think there's several hundred types of roses. But what are you seeing in terms of the interest people are showing in roses? What sort of things are people looking for in their roses? Um, I think most people are still looking for something new. I think um, there's probably 25 new roses that get released onto the market in Australia each year. Um, 
I don't know, as a grower, I find it exciting looking at everyone's different new roses that come in because there's always something different with them and um, they're all far better than what was perhaps around 30 years ago, 40 years ago. There's just, um, they're just improving in, uh, all the time. When you say better, what, how, how are they better? Um, I think health, vigour, um, um, not always fragrance, but you don't always need that. So I think just healthier plants, they're good. Um, less maintenance, different, there's different styles as well. Um, and I think probably every year it goes through a, um, um, you know, everyone, all the breeders are props on their own sort of uh, pattern, going where they are, just look, breeding something different. But um, that's the interesting part about it, it's just seeing so many different new roses, so it's good. And we were talking just before about um, how people have come back to gardening after COVID. Did you see a spike in interest and demand for the, the roses you're producing? Um, yes, uh, definitely through all nurseries and certainly online. Um, and I think, yeah, that's the first part of when COVID hit. Um, yeah, sales were crazy, which was really good. So um, I hope it continues. And is is yeah. it continuing now? Yeah, it is. We've had three years of it. It's been really good. So, um, yeah, we're quite happy. It's good. Now, you, I understand, do rose budding? No. We, well, we prop... Um, we produce rose plants and sell bare root plants around Australia. I get people in from overseas to do the grafting, so I don't do that myself. And no. why is, I was going to ask that, why is it that Australia doesn't really have graft or but rose butters and grafters? Um, I think it's just a seasonal job. It lasts for that three, three and a half months a year. Um, we do employ Australians that do that, but um, they'll bud during the summer and then work for wages during the, the rest of the year. Um, but there's just not enough people. And it's a very skilled job and it? it's... Um, it's easier sometimes just to find people that, um, that are professional grafters and go around the world and they'll land in the summer of each country um, and just keep budding, you know, perhaps in UK, then to Germany and then to France and then back here. So they just rotate and that's, that works out very well for us. Um, we we're lucky we can tap into that um, labour side of the business, which is good. So. And will you be uh, taking visitors for the from the world convention, the Rose Convention that's coming out? Um, if, no. they, if they like to, People yeah. People coming out to <laughs> um, How are they looking at the moment? Because it is it is quite late for Roses to be going through their first flush, which I think most are at the moment. Yeah, I think for us everything's behind. And because there was so much winter, uh, rain in winter, um, we sort of got behind with pruning and things like that. So for us personally, it's, it's a little bit behind, probably a month behind. So, right, a so, month. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Well, thanks so much. I, I look forward to seeing. What did you say you had? To, had 300,000. Oh, we plant about 450 Four. and then we buy in, yeah, yeah. Gosh, that's a lot of roses. I can barely keep up with my five <laughs> roses. <laughs> well, that's so much. Daniel Knight, who uh, from uh, Gawler is, is one of the biggest rose producers in this country. Now, the roses, maybe some of the roses that are grown at uh, Knight's Roses might have been bred by our next guest, Thomas Prohl. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Now, uh, you are a rose breeder from Cordy's in Germany. Made your way to Australia for the convention? Yes, for the convention, yeah. Now, we were talking about how there's several hundred varieties of roses out there. And I understand that to even get those, that, that sort of, um, num to actually get a, a closed breed of rose, 
takes an enormous amount of work. Can you explain the process you go through from trying to breed a new rose variety? Yeah, actually, um, one of the reasons I'm here is also to get uh, inspiration. And that's what it all starts with, uh, getting getting new ideas and then thinking about what mother plants, what mother and father you might combine. And then you start pollinating the roses and get a lot of seedlings, young plants from it, that everyone is an individual and you compare them to each other. That's in case of quarters, that's uh, around 200,000 a year. And after a, a selection and evaluation process of uh, roughly 10 years, you end up with five to 10 varieties that are released to the market. So, so it's a quite long, long process and leads a lot of patience. Yeah, so from two, 300,000 down to what, five? Five to ten, yeah, something like that. Depends a little on the climate, and that also makes a difference. We are we are breeding in the north of Germany. That's pretty humid and uh, rough climate, and not uh, the roses are not the same on every location on the world. So you have to, to trial them around, and that's what we have an agent. See here also with Tolor roses that some of uh, people might have heard about, and that's uh, where we try the roses for Australia. Then. And. What are you looking for when you're breeding your roses? A lot of things that have been mentioned already. Sustainability isn't new for us. We stopped already um, spraying fungicides in, in our rose trials in 1990, so over 30 years ago. And this pays off today that we get more and more disease-resistant roses. But still, we know everything that makes a rose beautiful. I mean, full flowers, color, and fragrance, we want to always combine with the disease resistance. That's the goal, to make uh, only, only a healthy plant can shine and can express the beauty and do you have a favorite that you've bred um, we breed as we have a typical way to answer this question uh, with, an, with a question have you ever asked a mother for her favorite child <laughs> I figured it might be along those lines it yeah. takes you years to breed yeah. it and it, it always depends a little on the point of view what, what makes the rules I have my own taste that I have to control because the breeding for the mass market I'm, I might go for extremes and out of the box out of the daily routine but uh, we always have to question ourselves will a rose sell so I, I have to control my own taste. And then it's a question if people say they love the rose, they admire it, or a colleague says it sells like hot cakes. So all, all of these things can make a rose uh, my, my favorite rose. So it, it might change over the days. I think that's a very egalitarian answer there. Do you, um, is it quite an interesting mix, though, of science and art? breeding a rose it, it definitely is so you have to be focused and um, it's it's kind of um, semi scientific work definitely but it also needs a good portion of passion and you have to, to love roses if you don't love roses you couldn't do that job and you say you've come to Australia for some inspiration with your breeding has anything jumped at, out at you so far that you've that you've tucked away as something you'd like to deploy? Uh, not yet. I've just arrived yesterday morning. Okay. So, and I'm actually a little disappointed uh, coming uh, roughly uh, once in a decade uh, about the, the weather you, you supplied this year because <laughs> with, the, with the late flower. But no, I'm, I'm looking forward to the next couple of days. Well, you guys had such a hot summer so in, in uh, Europe. So oh, it was, it's crazy. And I mean, this is one of the breeding goals for the future as well, that we definitely, with the, with the climate change, wherever it goes, it, it will 
deliver more weather extremes. And, and maybe you have been used, on your continent, you have been used to that anyway in the past, but also in Europe we have that experience lately. We had, we had very wet summers, flooded, but then we have uh, extremely hot conditions, uh, like in the last one. It, it certainly is, and, and we're cool and wet. It's a bit of a flip to what you normally it, it, expect. Yeah, yeah. Well, I hope you do get a chance to, to see some, some um, roses that inspire you. I've seen some massive roses this year. Maybe it's the, the wet season mm-hmm. or something, but some massive rose flowers this year. So uh, I hope you enjoy your time. I'm definitely, I will, I will pick, uh, I will take ideas home with me, and maybe in 10, 15 years, something might uh, we'll be see. created out of it. Yeah? Wonderful. We, we, we will talk again then. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Well, that was Thomas Prohl from Cordy's in Germany. He's a rose breeder, and he rounds out our coverage at the World Rose Convention on in Adelaide this uh, this Friday afternoon. But do keep listening to ABC Local Radio. We've got news up next as we approach twelve thirty at one o'clock. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.